All right. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another Jackman Radio episode. I'm your host, Eric Jackman, along with my brother, Mike. Really excited today um, to have the special guest on. Um, I kind of reached out to him, I think, probably back in January or February at this point to book him. Um, His name is Mark Devlin, and he's an author and a researcher, and he's done some really amazing uh, work in digging into the music industry, culture, and all of that, and how it's been manipulated. Uh, Mark, how are you today, man? Well, I'm okay, man. I'm up and down like the Rolling Stones uh, during the course of the average month. So some days I'm up, some days I'm down. <laughs> yeah, We're powering through regardless. Oh, absolutely, man. And you first came on my radar, Mark. Um, I'm a big fan of David Icke and Gareth and Jamie and the iconic lads. And um, I was just scrolling through Instagram and I saw you and Gareth talking to each other um, about Laurel Canyon and the music scene out there. So I guess before we kind of dig into everything, you know, just tell people a little bit about who you are and what you do and how you kind of got into all of this. Well, in a previous life, or what feels like a lifetime ago, I was a full-time DJ, club and radio DJ. I specialized in what was known back then as urban music. So effectively, that's rap and hip-hop, R&B, reggae, soul, funk, those sort of sounds. To a very large extent, those genres have completely lost their meaning now. What is purported to be R&B is nothing of the sort. Same thing for hip-hop. And the phrase urban has become meaningless as well. But we're going back 15, 20 years when I was in my heyday. And uh, I did that for 20-odd years as a full-time job. Prior to that, I had a couple of day jobs. I was a magazine journalist on a, a trade magazine paper. That's the only official day job that I've ever had since 1998. I've been self-employed and freelance and just doing odds and ends. And things got to 2010. And by that point, my entire worldview had shifted as a result of research that I'd been doing and different authors and researchers and films that I'd been looking at. And uh, life was just not the same from that point on. So I didn't continue as a professional DJ for much longer because I couldn't stand where the music was going. And I came to realize that that entire scene was pushing agendas and had ulterior motives. And in all good conscience, I just couldn't be a part of it anymore. So I did my first public talk on my research into the music industry in 2012. So that's 10 years ago now. And then I put out the first volume of my book, Musical Truth, in early 2016, and that was based on five years' worth of research. So from that point to this, I've been an author and researcher full-time and public speaker and broadcaster, and I've just been using whatever means I can to get across the information that I've discerned about the true nature of the corporate-controlled music industry and how that fits into the overall big picture of organized society, who really controls it, and what it's really used for. Yeah, absolutely. So what were some of the signs and things and patterns that you were seeing when you were working in the industry as a DJ for all those years? What was it that kind of started to make you scratch your head and say, you know, what the hell is going on here? I did notice changes taking place within hip hop in the mid 90s. So to my thinking, the glory years of that genre, which I used to know a lot about because I was very enthusiastic about the output. I knew all about the artists and the producers and the beats they used and all this. The glory years, I would say, were 1988 to 95. And then from 96 onwards, it really started to go down the toilet. And I think the murder of Tupac 
if that was a real event. I do have some doubts about it. But that was in September of 96, followed six months later by the murder of the notorious B.I.G., Biggie Smalls, which I do accept was a real event, marked the decline of that particular music genre. And it's just gone downhill ever since to the point that now it's just straight up satanic garbage that is not worthy of even being called music because it's just noise and it's horrific. So, uh, yeah, that was that was the point where I started to notice the music changing. And there were a few things that alarmed me. The lyrical content within hip hop went from once meaningful subjects and social commentary and things like this into the glorification of materialism. And a lot of this is laid at the door of Sean Puffy Coombs, known as Puff Daddy, P. Diddy, because he put the notorious B.I.G. on the map and he had a record label called Bad Boy Records. And Puffy was very largely responsible for introducing the bling element of hip hop, where rappers would glorify uh, having jewellery, having uh, gold rims on their Jeep. Uh, rocking fur coats, uh, drinking champagne, crystal up in the club. The glorification of these glamorous lifestyles, which nobody that listened to that music could ever hope to aspire to themselves. So it was like mockery of the audience from on the part of the rappers saying, we can afford all this stuff and you can't. So that did kind of ring some alarm bells, but it wasn't until after I'd properly woken up in 2010 that I went back and listen to a lot of this music that I've been playing on the radio and in clubs. And I could see see some very clear agendas <clears throat> being unfolded. I mean, an obvious one within hip hop goes all the way back to the early 90s, where you had the introduction of the subgenre known as gangster rap. And this was the glorification of criminal lifestyles, gun toting, uh, drive by shooting, selling drugs, this sort of thing. And that became a staple part of most rappers lyrical content there's a very famous letter now or infamous letter which is passed into legend which i've spoken about on previous shows which was written to a hip-hop magazine some years ago now and it was a guy who claimed that he'd worked for one of the major record labels in the early 90s and he'd been summoned to a meeting at a private residence somewhere in Los Angeles. And in this meeting were all the other big wigs, the top executives from the other record labels that had hip hop as part of their output. And there were a couple of guys that were wheeled in to do a speech to them. And they revealed that they were representatives of the private prison complex within the US, the prison system. And they asked these record company executives to work with them on changing the lyrical content of rap music so that the rappers would be glorifying <clears throat> these criminal lifestyles. And then the young, impressionable fans, who they had nothing but mocking contempt for, would try to emulate the lifestyles that they heard their rap idols bragging about. And this would ensure a constant flow of new inmates into the private prison system. And these two representatives said, if you work with us and do that, we'll share the profits with you and we can all make an absolute killing from this. And this one guy that wrote the letter said that he was so outraged and disgusted by this that he walked out and he was warned never to talk about what he'd heard. And it wasn't until some 20 odd years later that his conscience got the better of him and he felt the need to speak out. So I think that tells us a lot about that particular genre and the way it's been manipulated 
largely more than any other, I would say. Yeah. Well, I mean, you look at figures. You, you mentioned P. I guess he's called P. Diddy now. Um, when I was growing up in the 90s, he was Puff Daddy. He was all over the place. He was, you know, <clears throat> with Tupac. And uh, another figure, of course, is Suge Knight. And then that guy really acts like a mafia, a mafia don. I mean, he's he, he had... If you read, you know, uh, Russell Poole's research, um, you know, into the Tupac story, he had, you know, he had police on his detail. He had gang members. I mean, he had informants everywhere and in and out of prison and definitely glorifying that lifestyle. So I think he's a figure in all this that's someone to really look at in, in terms of the criminality. And um, you mentioned Tupac. I mean, he had been shot before and survived. So do, do you kind of think maybe the shooting in Vegas could have been staged or he could, he, I mean, I tend to think he's dead, but what, what are some of the things that point towards your, um, your disbelief? <clears throat> well, it's just the fact that I've seen evidence of other artists who we're told have passed away in some violent circumstance or other seemingly not having done so. I've got my doubts about Elvis Presley. I don't accept that he died on the toilet in 1977, as we're told he did. I've got my doubts about Jim Morrison. I don't really accept that he died in a bathtub in his Paris apartment in 1971, purely because of who his father was, which has been documented many times. Maybe we'll get into this when we talk about Laurel Canyon. Um, and then there's some other artists I've got my doubts about. Michael Jackson, not really sure. David Bowie, I lean towards David Bowie not having died when we're told he did. I know this sounds outrageous and fantastic to people when they first hear it, but there's a lot of symbolic clues that are given in each of these cases. And there's a lot of anomalies and things that just don't stack up with the official version. As you said, Tupac was shot first at the end of 1994 outside Quad Recording Studios in New York. And he always told the story that he'd been set up by Puffy and Biggie and the Bad Boy Records Collective or whoever controlled them because uh, he was shot in, in the um, entrance lobby to this recording studio and he was obviously not expected to survive in this incident, but he did and he somehow made his way up to whatever floor the recording studio was on where we were supposed to have the meeting with the others and he said the look of shock and disbelief on their faces when he stumbled into the room told him everything he need to know, needed to know about it having been a setup. Right. And then we're told in September 1996, he's shot in a drive-by shooting in Las Vegas after he's been with Suge Knight and others at a Mike Tyson boxing match. And um, they, they'd gone out on the town and this car pulled up at a set of lights when they're on a red light and just blasted the car with bullets. And um, one of the reasons why I've got my doubts about that being a real event is because a lot of the predictive programming that uh, seemed to foreshadow it, particularly the album that Tupac did under the alias Machiavelli, the Don Caluminati, on that album, which was released just a few weeks before he supposedly died, he's depicted being crucified on the front cover. And uh, there's a song on there called To Live and Die in LA, even though this supposedly happened in Vegas. But on top of that, Tupac was an actor. He was a trained actor. When he was in New York, before he moved out to California, he studied all kinds of performing arts, including ballet. But he was very well versed as an actor. He appeared in some movies. And I feel, and other researchers feel, that Tupac was, to a very large extent, a manufactured persona. And that he was glamorizing these sort of thug criminal lifestyles in order to push forward this agenda, the East Coast, West Coast beef, so-called, within hip-hop. 
which was uh, symbolized by Bad Boy Records going up against Death Row Records, Puffy versus Suge Knight, Tupac versus Biggie. There was a very high body count within that whole thing. There were a lot of copycat murders that went on and retaliations and stuff. It was chaos. It was death. It was destruction. It's all the things that the controllers of these industries love uh, and get off on. So just because he was an actor and because of who his mother was, his mother was involved with the Black Panther activist groups. And uh, I just feel that he was another manufactured persona that was given one of these roles, a lifetime actor, if you will. I really enjoyed his movie uh, Bullet with Mickey Rourke. That was a, that was one of his uh, best, in my opinion, and it certainly does show that that lifestyle in New York City, um, in and out of prison, and then you know shootings, and um, so so you think maybe he was just kind of he had his run, and then they kind of retired him, and maybe he's doing something else, or I mean, I you know I'm certainly I don't know I haven't really looked into that. It's a, it's a it's fascinating, yeah. but you know these these uh, organizations would certainly have the um, have the juice to do something like that, you know, have, have the ability to, uh, you know, get someone a new life, <clears throat> almost like right. witness protection, really. Yeah. Yeah. You can't fake your death and disappear into the shadows and get away with it without the full complicity of the military intelligence services. That's the only way it can happen. Right. So you have things like the CIA witness protection program, for example, and I feel that that is put to use in the world of entertainment when an artist is said to have passed away and so they have to disappear from the public eye. But we usually get a little nod, a little wink, a little clue that this has happened. And I think that was the case with David Bowie. I think we've got uh, some indications that that was the case, particularly via this guy, Jack Stephen, that they wheeled out on a news bulletin, Sky News, the following day. Did you see that one? Do you recall that? Well, I, I know that he, Bowie was very meticulous, or at least, you know, the group that worked with him in planning his album releases, usually around his birthday. And the last one, you know, uh, Lazarus or, or Black Star was released, I think, a couple of days before he passed away in January of 2016. Um, yeah. But who, who's this fellow that, that you're talking about that was went on the news? Well, Jack Stephen is said to have been a music industry executive or a producer that had worked with Bowie before, even though if you look in any of Bowie's biographies, the name Jack Stephen doesn't crop up and he doesn't seem to have any kind of backstory. If you try and look for him on the internet, last time I checked, there was only one other video of him and he looked completely different to the Jack Stephen that they wheeled out on the Sky News Bulletin. And he claims to have worked with him uh, for many decades. This guy claimed to have started his first company in 1970, uh, which would have meant that he'd be somewhere close to 70 years of age or at least in his late 60s now. And he looked nowhere near that old. But he did look a lot like you'd imagine David Bowie to look with a little bit of uh, cosmetic surgery. And uh, a lot of people remarked on how uncannily similar he was. And he also sounded very similar to him. And uh, he was asked about his feelings about Bowie having passed. And he said, it feels as if a little part of me has died. And I wonder if mm. that was a clue. But uh, after this, Jack Stephen just seems to have fizzled out and faded away himself into obscurity. Nothing's been heard about him since. And uh, I have to wonder whether that was a little announcement to the world of what had really happened to David Bowie, because they do like to tell us, you know, those who control these industries at their core nature are dark occultists, and they adhere to these ritualistic, religious sort of belief systems that they have. And one of their tenets is that they have to tell you what they're doing. They feel the need to reveal to you 
their tricks and their little tactics and their methods. And they do it in cryptic, encoded form, symbolic form. But nevertheless, they feel that they've absolved their responsibility to creation by telling us what's being done to us. And when we don't object to it or voice any kind of uh, dissent, they take that as our tacit approval. And they feel that this gets them off the hook in terms of the karmic payback that they would ordinarily have coming down on them. So it makes me wonder whether they'll serve up somebody like Jack Stephen to kind of let those with the eyes to see. It won't be many, but a few know that Bowie's still alive. There was also a similar incident with Michael Jackson and an individual who went by the name of Dave Dave. His real name was Dave Rothenstein. And he's said to have been a Burns victim. His backstory is that when he was a, a young lad, his father set fire to him and he underwent surgery for these horrific burns that he got. And it left him looking like he, you know, like he'd had cosmetic surgery. And they wheeled out this guy the day after Michael Jackson is said to have died. And many people remarked on how similar he sounded to Michael Jackson and how he looked like just what you'd imagine Michael Jackson to look like having undergone some complex cosmetic surgery. And then some people think that Tyka Nelson, who's said to be the sister of Prince, was really Prince in drag uh, the day after he's said to have died. I'm not so convinced about that one, but I do think this kind of dynamic goes on. Mike, you got a Google image, uh, Jack Stevens. I just pulled it up as <laughs> Mark was talking. And it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of creepy. What do you think? K-A-C-K-S-T-E-T-H. Yeah. Uh, it's a V, S-T-E-V-E-N. I'm going to um, do it right now in, in real time. I'm going to, yeah. yeah gonna, either, no, no S on the end. Okay. I no need S. to watch the video after too, but that's fascinating. So yeah, go, go in a little bit, Mark, into what this notion of lifetime actors are. You mentioned that, and I wanted to ask you about that. Give a little background on that. Yeah. So lifetime actor is a phrase that was coined by Joseph Atwill, the author and researcher. And he did a bunch of really good shows a few years ago with Jan Irvin called Unspun. They've since fallen out. I think Jan Irvin falls out with everyone that ever works with him. Uh, I don't know what he's doing now. Uh, he's kind of fallen off my radar. But for many years, they did uh, some really good shows. And it was all about the dynamics of culture creation and social engineering and how these manufactured heroes are served up to us by think tanks that specialize in these sort of activities. So a lifetime actor is someone who has a public image as one thing or another, which gets them familiar in the public mindset. So they might be a Hollywood actor, they might be a famous musician, they might be a television presenter, they might be a sports star, they might be a politician, and that's how people think of them. But then when you do a bit of digging into their family background, you can discover so much about where somebody is likely to have come from by looking at what the father's profession was and what affiliations he might have had. This is where we dovetail into the work of Dave McGowan as well, which we can get onto if you like shortly. But uh, Atwill and Irvin did some great digging around and they specialised in the 60s counterculture movement in looking at all the uh, cultural heroic figures that emerged out of that scene, like Timothy Leary and Ram Dass, Richard Alpert and uh, Ken Kesey and Gordon Wasson and all these people that were involved with LSD and all these psychedelics that were coming out in the 60s. And they just discovered that time and time again, you get connections going into 
Ivy League universities like Harvard and Yale. You get connections going into secret society, mystery schools, whether it's the Freemasons, the Rosicrucians, the Jesuits, whether it's Bohemian Grove, the Century Club, all these different organizations. You get connections into aspects of the military, military intelligence, endless ties to the CIA. That was Jan Irving's speciality, calling out everyone as a CIA agent. But there's so much documentation that's since come to light, particularly about the CIA's MKUltra mind control program, that shows just how many of these celebrities and public figures of the time were intrinsically tied up into that whole thing. Uh, a group that they've done a lot of work on is the Grateful Dead. And they've shown how the various members of that group had connections to the CIA and Bohemian Grove and uh, different occult secret societies and such. And uh, they appear to have been a CIA manufactured band. And it's the same with figures like Timothy Leary, the so-called acid guru, absolutely tied to the CIA. Gloria Steinem, who is credited with inventing the concept of feminism, and uh, she was the founder of Ms. Magazine, which is all about equal rights for women and all this sort of stuff, which sounds very noble on the surface. But all these cultural changes were occurring at exactly the same time as the hippie flower power scene of the 60s, with all the drugs and all the changes in music and the changes in social constructs and all these activist groups that were out there, like the Black Panthers and all these civil rights groups and stuff. So much social change was going on at that time. And when you look at the key figures behind all of these things, you find endless ties back to these same organizations. And this is where the concept of the Lifetime Actor comes in, because you think of them first and foremost as a rock musician or whatever. But what they're actually doing is fomenting major social change in line with social engineering agendas and such. I'll give you just one great example of a Lifetime Actor, which really makes the point, And that would be Bono of U2 whose public image, ostensibly, is that of a rock singer. But when you look at where he seems to have expended most of his energy in recent years, it's not in touring with U2 and putting out albums. It's been with uh, hanging out with the likes of Bill Gates and uh, Bill Clinton and Obama and the Pope and George Bush, George Soros, Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum. And Bono's been involved with so many of these NGOs. He's got his one foundation, which is uh, all about changing the fabric of, of society and culture and advancing the New World Order master plan, basically, uh, in line with the United Nations and all these other organizations. So Bono's been hobnobbing with these types of characters far more in recent years than he's been doing any music work. And that's because he's a lifetime actor. His real role is to influence these kinds of social changes and not to be out there as a rock singer. And he's just one of so many examples of this dynamic. He's basically the Pied Piper for the globalists and definitely in recent, I mean, of course, Live Aid in the 80s. Um, but I mean, and then we found out, you know, that U2 had all that offshore money through the Panama Papers when that came out a couple of years back. So yeah, he's, I don't know, man, Bono and, and you know, Calling him an actor, he's looking more and more like Robin Williams these days, too. So <laughs> with he looks like he's rotting from the inside out. That's what happens <laughs> when you don't have a soul left anymore. And you know who else has been propping up the World Economic Forum with Klaus Schwab? Will I am. Oh, black or, eyed peas, yeah. Yeah, or as I call him, Shill I am. So <laughs> he's pictured hanging out with Klaus Schwab and he's attended Davos meetings and all this. Why should that be? 
Why yeah. would you need a rapper, if you want to call him that, or a producer hanging out at these meetings? Well, he's got I, he's got I, the I, attention yeah. of a lot of young people, like you said. Exactly. Unless his real role is to influence culture in different ways than we think. Like you say, those who have enjoyed his music, if you want to call it that, are likely to listen to any kind of message he puts out. So if you decide you'd like Will I Am, don't know why you would, but some people do, uh, then anything he says is likely to uh, get your attention. And that's why they use these people. And my contention is they're never rappers or singers or producers first and foremost. They're cultural influences first and foremost. And the rapping or the singing or whatever it is, is just a way of getting them familiar in the general public so that people know who they are. And they decide that they like them, they build a fan base, and then that fan base is likely to go wherever these Pied Pipers lead them. Yeah, and, and it's funny because I, I take a lot of flack for it, which is fine, which I see, but I, I'm the opposite. I think Bono is a turd, but I like his music. Or I, I like the old U2, at least, the older U2 stuff. Um, they did have a few good tunes in their early days. I'll yeah, give that. I will follow and whatnot. But um, uh, yeah, it's funny. We actually, we talked touch on the Stones earlier, or maybe before we went live, and we actually saw the Rolling Stones at a ballpark here in America, Fenway in, in uh, Boston, and Black Eyed Peas opened for them, so... Very interesting. It, which I thought that was weird. It's back in 2005. And um, it's like, yeah, we're going to see the Rolling Stones and they're having the Black Eyed Peas open up for them. It was like, hmm, interesting. But all pals together. It, it's like George Carlin said, it's a, it's a club, but you ain't in it. You know? And you wouldn't want to be. No, no. I mean, you can imagine some of the stuff they have to do. And, and uh, I think it was the comedian Patrice O'Neill who, who has since passed that talked about. Um, you know, rappers and certain comedians, there's overlap in what they have to do to get a spotlight on them or get a role. And he's basically saying a lot of these dudes had to wear dresses like uh, Martin Lawrence and uh, other. Yeah, right. yeah that Dave Chappelle, that claim. Yeah, yeah. I think Chappelle, you know, kind of like what you're saying, when they drop clues or they drop hints, Chappelle's dropped a lot of hints over the years, especially in his last couple um, Netflix specials that he that he's done. Um, you know, basically just just talking about how even these big, you know, quote unquote stars, they they got to serve somebody. So it's it's very interesting to see that crossover from the inner, you know, basically the whole entertainment world writ large, especially in music. That's right. Bob Dylan had a song in his latter years called "You Got to Serve Somebody," and he's talking about this very concept. And he'd be one to know because a lot of your viewers are probably familiar with this interview that he did a few years back with Ed Bradley, oh, where yeah. he basically openly admits to having sold his soul for fame and fortune. He talks about this bargain that he made, and he's keeping up his end of the deal. And that's why he's been around for so long. It goes all the way back to the concept of uh, making a bargain with the devil, the Faustian principle, the Faustian bargain. And in the music industry, this legend is attached to the blues musician Robert Johnson, going all the way back to the 1930s. And he's said to have made a deal with the devil, whether you take that literally or metaphorically, at a crossroads in a remote desert location. And a crossroads is said to symbolize the point where this apparently physical world overlaps with the spiritual world, and there could be interaction between the two. And Johnson is said to have received great musical proficiency on the blues guitar as a result of this deal that he made but his part of the bargain was to give up his mortal soul and although he was successful for a short period afterwards he was dead by 1938 
at the age of 27, having apparently been poisoned in very bizarre circumstances. So that one didn't end too well. But it illustrates this Faustian bargain, this idea of selling your soul, which crops up so many times within entertainment. Yeah. Have you seen the flick uh, Angel Heart with Mickey Rourke from the 80s? Uh, has that got Robert De Niro in as well? Is that the yeah, one? De Niro plays the devil and Mickey yeah, Rourke right. plays, yeah, yeah. plays yeah. A, a, you know, a hack musician who basically makes a deal with the devil for fame and fortune yeah, and power. One, yeah. And it doesn't go very well. <laughs> yeah. But well, I think it's more blatant though now, Mark. Don't you see it becoming more blatant in like Katy Perry's music videos, the recent... Um, the rap uh, fellow there, the guy who who, who uh, rides a stripper pole to hell and gives Satan a lap dance. I mean, it's it's like it seems like it's just they're mocking us even more, and it's becoming more blatant. Yeah, it's unbelievable. I mean, when I sort of let go of my attachment to so-called rap and hip hop, which would be fifteen plus years ago now, I thought it was bad then. I thought it was the dregs of the cesspit in terms of where they were taking things. I would never have imagined that we'd see blatant displays of Satanism and dark occult rituals right in front of our eyes. Through these stage shows, largely, you know, the Grammys, the Super Bowl halftime show, the MTV VMAs, even the Eurovision Song Contest. Now, these shows with huge audiences, not just in the stadiums, but on television, you know, millions of people tuning into these shows. And they're just blatantly performing occult rituals under the guise of entertainment. But when you know what you're looking for, you see all the symbolism. It becomes so obvious. And just the way the stuff sounds now as well, it just sounds straight demonic to me. I mean, I know people will say that I'm getting old and I'm not in touch with youth culture, but if what's being put out there now is the youth culture of the day, I don't want to be in touch with it. I'm not interested because I come from an era where I remember better days, better times, better music. I'm just listening to the stuff that's coming out now and the sound frequencies that they're putting into these recordings and the use of auto-tune, which is, you know, the devil's own tool, making all these rappers and singers sound like robots. It's all part of the glorification of AI and transhumanism and this technologically dominated society. But uh, auto-tune is, you know, straight up demonic uh, in terms of how it sounds, but it's bloody everywhere. So that tells you there's an agenda on. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you look at like Kanye West and the episodes he has, and I, I tell people sometimes when I see that, that's like, well, these these guys, their MK Ultra wiring comes unloose and they have these moments where they blurt out these things, you know, and then, nope, it's got to go to rehab. Oh, we got to put him in the hospital. So, um you, you mentioned uh, there's some honorable mentions of people in the industry who do kind of shine a light on what's really going on and, and you know, maybe reveal some stuff and, and speak truthfully about that. So when you think over the last 50 years, um, you know, whether it's in pop music, rock or hip hop, who do you view as some of these honorable mentions who are actually, you know, people who wanted to expose what was going on and show what it was really all about? Well, there's some obvious ones, which I'll get to, but I just want to pull up this guy's name because somebody sent me this yesterday, John Sykes. So John Sykes was a former guitarist with Thin Lizzy, Phil Lynott and them. Phil Lynott died in some very suspicious circumstances at quite a young age. So there's some questions arising there. But this guy, Jeff Sykes, has uh, 
for quite a number of years now, I think, been putting out socially conscious music, meaningful messages, and he's very clued up on what's going on. He knows all about the New World Order agenda, and as far as I can see, he's seeking to expose it through his music, so fair play to him. And just in case I forget, uh, I do want to give a mention to Jim Corr of the Irish group The Cause. I've met Jim at quite a few truth conferences, and he's another guy that is very clued up, and he's done his due diligence, he's done his research, he's taken that personal responsibility to get clued up as to what's really going on in the world, and fair play to him as well. But in terms of those that have spoken out about the uh, C-word agenda that we've been living under for the past couple of years, it doesn't take too long, as I was telling you. Honorary mentions would go to Van Morrison, who has been openly critical of government lockdown policies, particularly in the UK, and particularly the government of Northern Ireland, who really cracked down on live music performances in 2020, going into 2021. And Van Morrison was rightly pissed off about this because he made the point that it's depriving musicians of being able to make a living and they're causing no harm. So why should they not be able to make a living in the way that other professions are? And so he became uh, very vocal in his campaigns about that. And I was just amazed that so few others joined him on that crusade, because you would think that any musicians reliant on going on tour, playing gigs, doing festivals, would want to add their voice to this argument. But it was pretty much fighting a lone battle. He did get joined by Eric Clapton, and Eric Clapton made a couple of records with him where they were criticising the government response to the you-know-what. And uh, Eric Clapton also did that interview with Oracle Films where he expressed his regret over having taken the arm spear with all the damage that that seemed to have done to him. So, you know, commendations have to go to Van Morrison and Eric Clapton. And then, of course, there's Ian Brown of the group The Stone Roses, who for many years, about 20 years now, has been very uh, outspoken about the New World Order agenda, and he's tried to warn people about that. He's talked about geoengineering in his songs. He's talked about illegal warfare. He's talked about corruption at the highest level. So respect to Ian Brown. Now we're starting to struggle because we're starting to run out of names. I do have to shout out Right Said Fred, which is always an unlikely name to throw into the conversation. But these two guys who were popular in the early 90s with some sort of novelty pop dance hits, were the unlikeliest political activists within this agenda. But they showed up at a bunch of the freedom rallies in London, and they were saying that uh, people should have the right to uh, to assemble and to go where they want, want to go and freedom of movement and all this. And absolutely they should. And why weren't more people saying it? Then you've got the DJ, the dance music DJ, Danny Rampling, and there's another DJ called Slipmat, and they've had some great things to say, but I'm really starting to run out of names after this. And this is shocking because the music industry, particularly when you get down to genres like punk and new wave, for example, and hip hop and reggae and uh, heavy rock, heavy metal is supposed to be populated by anti-establishment types. They're a bit rebellious. They're artistic. They're bohemian. They don't cooperate with uh, regular society. They're a bit different from regular folk. You know, that's the image that they've carved out for themselves. Some of them position themselves as anarchists and rebels, but we haven't really seen much of an expression of that from these people when it's mattered the most, have we? So what's the point 
of being an artist with a large fan base that you can reach with a message anytime you wish to, if at the time in human history when your voice is needed more than any other to spread truth, to counter the deceptive mainstream narrative, you just shut up and say nothing. Or worse yet, tow the official line and uh, you know push the mainstream narrative. That's what we've seen. So I see this as another proof that the music industry is absolutely controlled. These household name A-list artists, call them lifetime actors, as many of them are, are doing the bidding of those that control these industries. They're dancing to their tune. They're running their agendas. And none of them have a mind or a soul that they're able to call their own. Yeah, you've seen a lot of them essentially just become shills, you know, like basically big pharma shills in the last couple of years. That's right. Um, reworking some of their most famous songs to talk about, um, you know, getting getting the book book or the, what would you call it, the arm spear? The arm spear, <laughs> um, yeah. Even like Carol King, finished. and uh, isn't she an old Laurel Canyon figure? Carol, Carol King. King was connected to Laurel Canyon, yeah. But you've also got, running concurrently, of course, with the C word agenda, you've had the whole woke uh, thing, the whole work oh, yeah. which is going it's on. Not, it's nauseating. It really is. And another thing that's incredible is how a lifetime actor's work is never done. And you know these movies that you see from time to time, and it will depict a former CIA operative or special services, uh, you know, military intel, and they've supposedly retired. So you see them at a lake fishing with their grandkids or whatever and the phone yes. rings and they're called back for one last job and they say something like just when i thought i was out they pull me back in well i think it's like that in entertainment because if you become one of these shills one of these owned assets you're never able to retire not on your own <clears> terms <throat> anyway and if that call comes in even at a very late stage in your career you're still doing what they say and I think we saw an illustration of that with Neil Young just recently. Oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. So Joe Rogan, I don't particularly like Joe Rogan, but I'm just using him to make the point. I don't trust him. I don't think he's on the side of truth, but that's another matter. Anyway, he did this show where he had Dr. Robert Malone on. And Malone was questioning the safety of the Vs, the arm spears and bringing his medical expertise to the table. And this was a, a show from Joe Rogan that went absolutely viral. It was shared very widely, and it got him cancelled. It got him kicked off of various platforms. So then Neil Young pops up out of the woodwork, and he threatens to pull all of his music off of Spotify if they don't delete that Joe Rogan show where he's featuring Dr. Robert Malone questioning the efficacy of the Vs. So nothing says lifetime actor shill more than somebody threatening to prevent you from listening to keep on rocking in the free world if you don't agree with his standpoint on a certain issue. And then Joni Mitchell pops up and she jumps to Neil Young's defense when he's taken a bit of a hammering in certain aspects of the media for taking this stance with Spotify, and she threatens to pull her music from Spotify as well, standing in solidarity with Neil Young. So these two are figures that have been around since the 1960s. They were part of the counterculture. They were both 
coming out of Laurel Canyon, heavily connected to it. They both got both got military fathers, and you know, coming from military families, by the by. And all these years later, when they're needed to fulfil some agenda or other, that call comes in, and they're dancing to the Piper's tune. So you're never really out. And the best advice, therefore, has to be don't get in in the first place. Right. And so many of their boomer fan base just were were salivating over it. Did you see Neil Young? Oh, my God, he's so brave. That was amazing. And these are the people who were young back in the day when he was just getting going. And, um, wow, that's that's a great point. Yeah, I see it. You know, yep. it's, it's, it's like him uh, driving down uh, from Canada in the hearse. You know, it's it's a great story. <laughs> you know, Eric, well, did you want to cool. get into Lookout Mountain, Eric? And we've got probably about 20 minutes or so. So we yeah, want to talk about John Lennon and then Lookout Mountain. Right. I mean, a, a good way to, to kind of get people to look at this, uh, I will always bring up Laurel Canyon. So if you could sum up, Mark, what Laurel Canyon is and who the players were there to someone who maybe have never heard of this before. So Laurel Canyon is a district in the Hollywood Hills overlooking Los Angeles. It was very popular with Hollywood actors in the early days of that industry, from the silent movie days uh, going through to the films of the sort of 1930s and 40s. And a lot of the actors used to base themselves in Laurel Canyon. Uh, but it never really had any kind of musical history or heritage until the mid-1960s, just when the counterculture, hippie, flower power scene was starting to get going. And you had all these major social changes coming out of California. At that point, for some reason, there was a huge number of music makers who migrated from other parts of the United States, from Canada, in the case of uh, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, both from Canada, and certain artists from the UK, the group The Animals from Newcastle came over from England and based themselves in Laurel Canyon. So there was something about this this place that was pulling all these music makers in. This is where we get into the excellent detective work of the late writer Dave McGowan, who put out his great work, Weird Scenes Inside the Canyon, in 2014. Dave's interest was sparked by this particular community this neighborhood and he did a real deep dive into the families and the affiliations and the connections that these prominent music makers had who were all turning up for some reason in Laurel Canyon and he presented connection after connection after connection into the world of the military so so many of these young musicians had families who were steeped in the CIA great example being Jim Morrison uh, whose father was a Navy admiral in charge of the fleet of ships involved in the Gulf of Tonkin incident. McGowan famously presented that example. Frank Zappa's father was involved in bio-warfare uh, based at the Edgewood Arsenal, working on uh, bio-weapons, which, which is kind of topical for these times. And uh, so many other connections, so many of these groups, the Mamas and the Papas, John Phillips, Mama Cass Elliot, uh, connections going into the military, Joni Mitchell, as we said. Uh, who else was involved? Uh, Captain Beefheart, Buffalo Springfield. Uh, the Monkees were connected to Laurel Canyon for a time. Uh, Jackson Brown, so many others. Basically, all the musicians that were at the forefront of that musical revolution known as the counterculture that weren't based in San Francisco, such as the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplane, were based down in Laurel Canyon. And within that neighborhood, 
there was a long-standing military installation that was used for surveillance and monitoring, but it was also used for making movies, propaganda movies, during the Second World War. And it was known as Lookout Mountain, right at the top of uh, one of these mountains in the canyon. And various people, various famous people, seem to have been connected to this establishment over the years, including Walt Disney, uh, James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart, Marilyn Monroe, Bob Hope. And in recent years, it got bought by Jared Leto, the Hollywood actor. I went up to Laurel Canyon a few years ago with Greg Carlwood, the host of the Higher Side Chats, and we followed the trail of McGowan's work to look at some of these locations that cropped up in his story. So we went to Frank Zappa's log cabin house, and this is where a number of these musicians used to congregate and socialize and come together with Zappa as the sort of host, the ringmaster. We saw Jim Morrison's old house right by the Laurel Canyon Country Store. We saw, uh, well, we got as far up as we could to Lookout Mountain. We went to what was 10050 CLO Drive, which is the scene of the Tate murders, the so-called Tate Manson murders. We had a look at that. We had a look at the hotel room where Janis Joplin died, right at the base of Lookout Mountain near Sunset Boulevard. And that place has been turned into a shrine for Janis Joplin. So people still stay in the room. But when you go into the closet, there's all kinds of messages and pictures that have been scrawled on the wall as tributes to the memory of Janis Joplin. So that was a very strange trip, but it really brought to life that whole story. And McGowan's work opened my eyes to the fact that you get these connections into military intelligence and aspects of the government with so many of these musicians. And it's not just exclusive to Laurel Canyon. I sort of took the baton from McGowan, who sadly passed away in 2015, uh, of a very fast-acting and aggressive form of cancer. Uh, I sort of followed his lead in doing that nature of research and started digging around into the backgrounds of musicians from other scenes the punk and new wave scene, uh, the rock music scene, heavy metal, uh, grunge, all of this stuff. And in all these genres, you find the very same indicators that so many of these artists are not who you think they are. Connections for days. Yeah, Laurel Canyon is, um, yeah, I mean, Lookout Mountain, Jared Leto, you, you... <laughs> He's like you said. He's he dabbles in all of it. He does the music. Uh, what's it? Sixty seconds to Mars with his brother there, and then he's thirty act, seconds to Mars. Thirty seconds to Mars, and then he he's like a cult leader. He he has these trips. He takes to islands with people, and you can pay like fifteen hundred dollars to go glamp on some island and worship at his altar and follow him around while he's sashing around in a white robe. So it's uh, it's it's not a surprise that he, he would be attached. Yeah, of course, to La La Land for nothing. La La Land. Yeah, it's it's so true. And there are all these these deaths and um, violent deaths and drugs and, and horrible things that happen all around the scene that people just aren't really aware about. They think about like, you know, flower power in 60s and it was all peaceful and, and nice. And you mentioned um, the Manson thing. And Mike, you read Chaos, the, the book Chaos. Yeah, O'Neill's book Chaos there came out uh at this point now, 2020, and uh, he, he did a lot of digging into that and basically showed that, you know, Manson was was uh, getting drugs and women for a lot of these stars, and they were tended to be very coy about it and how well they actually knew him and how involved in the scene he was. Um, and, you know, the Manson family may have actually, um, you know, committed other murders that were not previously linked to the case. And 
Also, just the fact that the clinic that he would go to and take the girls to was just a, a CIA front, you know, with some academic, uh, could have been a, a medical or, or a, um, you know, psych psychological uh, institution that was doing a study that was funded by the CIA. So there's a lot of inter interesting connections. And I think he goes into, uh, you know, Jolly West, the CIA doctor who was linked to uh, the Manson case and also um, the Kennedy assassination because he went in and examined Jack Ruby. Um, you know, before he ultimately died of cancer when he was in prison. So there's a lot of interesting connections. Yeah. You know, there for well, sure. Pay Ultra is just woven into the very fabric of the music industry backstory. You just find mind control everywhere. There's a derivative of MK Ultra known as Monarch Programming, which you find throughout the music industry uh, right the way up to this day. There's evidence to show that many famous artists out there at the moment would have been subject to this kind of trauma-based mind control programming. There's also beta sex kitten programming. And uh, where you find the evidence of mind control, satanic ritual abuse is never far from the surface. In fact, those two are you know, very interlinked. And then you find other kinds of dark occult ritualistic practices. And unfortunately, you find pedophilia, and if you really want to go deep and dark, you get into realms such as, uh, I don't know if we want to say the word, but the A word, uh, you know, which has become a thing. So none of these things should be there, should they? We're talking about entertainment, which is presented to us as fun. It's something sure. happy that, that you just absorb yourself in. You do it to forget all your stresses and all your troubles of everyday life. You just immerse yourself in a movie or a TV show or listen to some music, go and see a band, go to a club. You're not expecting to be mind controlled when you do these things. You're not expecting to have dark occult symbolism flashed into your subconscious mind when you do these things. You're not expecting to find pedophilia and satanic ritual abuse and dark occult witchcraft and sorcery and stuff like this when you're looking at these things. But unfortunately, you do. And so these industries are nothing like how they're presented to us. And what it really comes down to, of course, which many of us have figured out now, is that the world is nothing like the way it's been presented to us. And it's not run by the people and the institutions that we're told it is. It's a very different story. Yeah, and that, that leaks into all areas, whether it's, you know, television or film and, of course, the music industry. And I think I just want to close here, you know, with the Beatles. I mean, uh, I'll be honest, I grew up listening to the Beatles. I'd probably tell you they're my favorite band. Um, I've seen Paul and Ringo perform, um, you, you know, but I've also looked into the, the darker side of the whole Beatles story, um, including the Lennon assassination. Uh, more recently, I read this book, which I saw you talking about on a podcast, I think, a year, maybe a year or two ago. Um, who Killed John Lennon by Fenton Bresler. And, um, you know, before we kind of close on the Lennon assassination, the Beatles, I mean, you know, they were they were hanging out with the likes of Jimmy Savile. They were, they had, um, you know, they had, had a lot of weird associations. And um, there's a, there's people who don't think that, uh, that they necessarily wrote and performed all of their own music, especially looking at the, the change between their early, output compared to what they were doing in like 65 and 66. Now I would argue that because they did so many shows, they got better. Um, but you know, there's other researchers out there who just think they didn't have simply didn't have the time to put together that complex music. Um, and I haven't, I haven't, I'm just starting to kind of look into that aspect of it. But what do you think about that? What, what are your thoughts on the Beatles? I really like the music of the Beatles always have. 
And there's always been something fascinating about them that's just drawn me to them. They're so much more interesting than all the other groups, including the Rolling Stones. I've researched the Rolling Stones, but I don't particularly care about them. It's just research. But with the Beatles, their story just really, uh, you know, sparks something within me. And I was thinking about this this morning. The Beatles story is very deep and very complex. And there are a great many secrets that would obviously have been kept. And I was thinking just recently about how few people still remain alive that would have had first-hand knowledge of the Beatles' uh, glory years. And there aren't many of them left. I mean, some people can test whether that's the real Paul McCartney. We don't really have time to go into that in this show, but of course there is this conspiracy theory that suggests the real Paul McCartney died in a car accident on 9-11 of 1966, and that the individual we have today playing the public role is an imposter by the name of William Campbell or William Shepherd, known as Billy Shears. Like I say, that's a whole different rabbit hole, but many people don't accept that that's really McCartney. So if you don't accept that's the real McCartney and that he's dead, you're left with Ringo, who wasn't even an original member of the Beatles, Pete Best, who was the original drummer, he's 80 now, but he's still alive. Then you've got Yoko Ono, who is in her late 80s, I think, uh, almost 90, and yeah. from what I hear, in quite ill health. And Mei Pang, who was John and Yoko's secretary. And John Lennon had an affair with Mei Pang during his Lost Weekend episode in about 1973-74, with the blessing of Yoko, when their marriage was on the rocks and Yoko suggested that John went over to LA and yeah. shacked up with May Pang and got into a sexual affair with her. And during that time, John Lennon was actually hanging out in Laurel Canyon and going out on drinking binges with Harry Nilsson and people like that. So you've got a connection there into Laurel Canyon, but that's pretty much it. Everyone else has gone. So just imagine all those secrets that have been taken to the grave, things that the rest of us will never find out now because there's nobody left to tell those stories. But in terms of this suggestion that Lennon and McCartney didn't write all the songs they've been credited with, I think there's a lot of credibility to that argument. And much of the evidence has come from Mike Williams, known as Sage of Quay, who's done some real deep dives into whether it was actually physically, logistically possible for those two young guys to have written as many songs as they're said to have done, several hundred uh, there was one video that Mike did during 2020 when he had a lot of time on his hands, a lot of time at home, as we all did. And he came up with a four and a half hour video focused on the album Rubber Soul and everything that the Beatles were said to be dur doing during that period. So there's this resource online called the Beatles Bible, and it takes every day in the history of the band and breaks down what they were all doing on that particular day. And so Mike looked at that. And he worked out that between all the TV interviews that they were doing, all the filming they were doing, all the public appearances, the chat show uh, talks, uh, just private family stuff, touring, uh, recording, it just would not have been possible for them to find enough time to write all the songs that they were said to have done during a certain period. And if that's true of that particular period, then it's probably true of the entire history of the Beatles. And also some of the songs that Lennon and McCartney are said to have written. Uh, they were in their very early 20s when these songs were produced. And these songs are very rich and complex in lyrical themes. 
And it leads you to question whether a couple of young lads, barely in their 20s, could have had that kind of life experience and that kind of perspective to have been able to written so to, to be able to write so poetically and so creatively. So there's all those things. Some researchers feel that the Beatles were connected to the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations, which is one of these social engineering think tanks. I think that's very likely to be the case. I do feel they were an asset of the Intel services because they were pushing agendas, particularly in that second half of their career. So they emerged on the scene as effectively a boy band singing all these pleasant love songs, Boy Meets Girl. And then round about 1966, their output starts to change. You get Tomorrow Never Knows, this very strange song based around the Tibetan Book of the Dead, as translated by Timothy Leary. And this was starting to usher in the LSD-laden psychedelic era. Most of the LSD that emerged during that time came directly from the CIA through those routes. And the whole counterculture scene, as we discussed earlier, was very largely a product of the CIA and these social engineering think tanks. So there's no way the Beatles would have just stumbled into that. There's no way they were just in the right place at the right time. There's no way they saw all this happening and said, hey, lads, we need to get involved in this. This is where things are going. They were chosen to be at the forefront of it and to be the Pied Pipers of that scene, alongside the other groups of the time. The Rolling Stones played a role in that. So did The Who, you know, so did The Doors, so did The Grateful Dead and these various other groups. And so that's my feelings on the Beatles. And I do feel that in their latter years, or certainly everything they did post the Beatles breakup, John Lennon and George Harrison were in part trying to atone for what it was they'd been a part of, because both those guys seemed to develop something of a conscience. And you can see that in the solo music that they put out after the Beatles had split up. I was listening to a George Harrison song yesterday called Blood from a Clone. And he's very critical about the music industry machine and how it churns out product on a conveyor belt like basis. And he's talking about these horrible noises that they package as music. Well, this song was written in 1981 and things were a damn sight better then than they are now. When he talks about horrible noises packaged as music, that could have been written about today, today's scene. And then John Lennon left behind a, a huge catalogue of solo songs where he's making social commentary and he's criticising the, the so-called elite ruling class and all this sort of thing. Whereas you didn't get that from Paul and Ringo. Paul and Ringo have always played it safe. The most controversial that Paul ever got was with Give Ireland Back to the Irish in the very early 1970s. But other than that, he's played the game. And so Paul and Ringo are still with us, if you accept that's Paul, and George and John aren't. And I think that speaks volumes. Yeah, I mean, George's final album, Brainwashed, you listen to some of those lyrics, man, and you just you look at the artwork around that album, and he, he lays a lot of it out there. Um, just, just like you said, I, I've never heard that Harrison song. He's my favorite Beatles song. I'm going to have to Blood from a Clone, you said it's called? Yeah, Blood from a Clone. Uh, I forget the name of the album, but the track's from 1981. I'm going to feature it in my next episode of The Sound of Freedom. That probably would have been the same album that all those years ago was on. I think it's that album. I believe it was, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Lennon's my favorite Beatle too, Mark. And we might not have the time to really get into his assassination today. But um, I do remember reading in the 90s, his son, Sean, it was in some New York magazine or New York newspaper, 
basically saying, I think the government was was involved in the murder of my father. And I've tried to find that in a Google search, and I, I can't even find that article anymore. Are you familiar yeah. with that? Uh, no, I don't think I've seen that. But just very briefly to get into the Lennon assassination. So the official line is that Mark Chapman was the lone gunman, and it's the familiar narrative that we get. He was just this nutter that... Uh, you know, got pissed off with John Lennon and wanted to take him out of the world. But of course, it goes much deeper than that. He was a CIA asset. He'd worked overseas for various organizations which were fronts for the CIA, such as World Vision, this charity. And uh, he would appear to have been a Manchurian candidate style assassin who had undergone MK Ultra mind control programming to set him up for this role. But many researchers feel that Chapman didn't actually pull the trigger and kill John Lennon. He was programmed to act as if he had and to believe himself that he had. This is part of the programming that can go on. And the real assassin was an individual by the name of Jose Perdomo, who was a known CIA assassin. He'd been involved in many black ops on behalf of the agency, going all the way back to the Bay of Pigs uh, invasion days of the early 60s. And he was posing as the doorman on the Dakota building in New York on the night that Lennon was shot. And there's a couple of uh, eyewitness testimonies. My friend Matt Sergiu, who I do the Magical Mystery Talk podcast with, who's got an encyclopedic knowledge of the Beatles, would know more about this than me. But uh, there are a couple of people that were there that night who have said that uh, Chapman assumed a sort of marksman's position, but that the bullet didn't actually come from his gun. He didn't fire any shots, but that the real shots were fired by the doorman, who was acting as if he was trying to protect Lennon, but was actually the one that had shot him. Whereas Yoko walked on ahead and was perfectly safe in the whole thing, leading some to believe that she may, be, may have been complicit in it and knew what was going to happen. So my take on it is that it probably wasn't Chapman and he's been stitched up to take the rap for it in the same way that Lee Oswald was with the JFK assassination, in the same way that Sirhan Sirhan was with the Robert Kennedy assassination. And both these guys are still rotting away in jail and probably didn't even do what they've been accused of. Yeah, I mean, there's so many things with Mark David Chapman, especially after reading Who Killed John Lennon, um, you know, that come to mind, like who, you know, where did he get the money to travel to all these countries, you know, a man in his early 20s, um, you know, who who at one point either admitted himself or was admitted by a girlfriend or, or an associate to a, you know, a psychiatric hospital. And he later ends up working for the hospital and they supposedly loan him or give him all this money to travel all over the world. Um, you know, and then you have when he landed in New York, he, oh, I didn't realize I couldn't purchase bullets in New York. And he has to go down to a southern state and, you know, that friend or associate that gets him the bullets. And there's just a lot about it that I think wasn't properly investigated or followed up on because he did plead uh, guilty to it. So the police are like, we got our guy. We literally got the smoking gun, um, which there's some questions about the movement of the gun. You know, the doorman having uh, someone who worked in maintenance at the Dakota bring it down to the basement and then bring it back up. And certainly how calm Chapman was said to have been, um, you know, during and after, you know, shooting Lennon. So another question I had about the doorman that I've read, I don't know if you have any information on this, but he was talking with Chapman or with another witness about the Kennedy assassination, the actual night of uh, Lennon shooting. Have you heard that? Uh, no, I've not heard that one. 
Yeah, I'll have to find a source on that, but I, I did read that. Um, but I also read that the doorman stayed on, you know, in that role for years. So there's some who don't think that it was him, but I don't know. Just him being able to approach Chapman and, and get the get the gun from him, and then Chapman just calmly reading Catcher in the Rye. There's just a lot about it that's really kind of surreal. Um, and because it was like 11:15 or 11:30 at night, there weren't a ton of people that would normally have been there. Um, you know, waiting to meet or see John Lennon. So there weren't a ton of witnesses. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. It's it's an interesting one well, to look I've at. I've heard that Podomo apparently went up to Chapman and said, do you know what you've done? And Chapman said, I've just shot John Lennon. And that's interpreted as he's checking whether the program is, is intact and whether right. this guy is going to go along with it and accept that he just killed him, which would get Podomo off the hook. Yeah, and then there's interviews where Chapman talks about the voices that he heard in his head, you know, so that could go back yeah. to him. But it's all that, consistent with MK Ultra, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think it's possible. I mean, I, I before I, I really uh, for years refused to ever look at it because like you were talking about the Beatles, you have this like this emotional connection to them and their music. And so I never really looked at Lennon's assassination too deeply, but I have uh, in, in uh, more recent months and uh, I, re I wouldn't be surprised at all. I really, I, I really wouldn't be surprised. So, yeah, very little surprises me anymore, brother. I tell you, <laughs> exactly. Well, hey, we're past the hour mark here, uh, Mark, and I just I want to thank you for your time. Uh, before we wrap here, just tell people where they can find you and uh, support you and what you have coming up in the pipeline. Sure. Well, my main hub website is djmarkdevlin.com, and there's links to everything from there. I was on YouTube for many years. They've kicked me off, so I don't bother with them anymore. My videos are hosted on BitChute and Odyssey. You can link to them from the main website. My audio shows are hosted on Spreaker for my speech-based content. I've got a show called Good Vibrations, which is similar in format to this. It's me having conversations with interesting guests. Then my music output is on Mixcloud.com. So I've got a weekly show called The Sound of Now, which is soulful, uplifting, inspirational house music. And then I've got The Sound of Freedom, which is conscious message music. I really enjoy pulling together a wide variety of that stuff from over the years. And I'm up to 111 shows on that one now. And then on top of that, I'm doing a whole bunch of speaking dates to promote the new book. So I've got my Musical Truth trilogy, volumes one, two, and three. Volume three dropped just a few months ago. And I'm currently touring the UK, doing a bunch of talks. If circumstances of the world were different, I would be doing some overseas dates as well. But for as long as the kind of restrictions on international travel that are currently in place remain, I won't be boarding an aeroplane anytime soon. So these dates are just limited to the UK. But in terms of the books, they're all available on Amazon for convenience, for speed. But if anyone wants to get them from me direct, I can send out signed copies and you can just drop me an email to markdevlinuk at gmail.com. All right. Awesome. Well, you heard it, folks, Mark Devlin, really interesting stuff. And we'll definitely want to get you on again for a follow-up. There's so many directions we can go in with this stuff. So if you want to just hang out with us for one more minute, Mark, after we uh, end here. But uh, folks, support Thank this you. channel. Click subscribe down below, uh, patreon.com slash jackmanradio. Follow us on all social media, on Twitter, on Instagram. And be sure to check out Mark's work um, because, you know, he's he's really – he's carrying the uh, the baton here that McGowan left and uh, is doing, doing amazing stuff that everyone should be aware about. So thanks for tuning in. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time.